Section 1 of The Day of Sir Wilfrid Laurier. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Scott Foster. Prefatory Note and the Making of a Canadian. The Day of Sir Wilfrid Laurier, a Chronicle of Our Own Time by Oscar D. Skelton. Prefatory Note in conformity with its title, this volume, save for the earlier chapters, is history rather than biography, is of the day more than of the man. The aim has been to review the more significant events and tendencies in the recent political life of Canada. In a later and larger work it is hoped to present a more personal and intimate biography of Sir Wilfrid Laurier. O. D. Skelton, Kingston, 1915 Chapter 1. The Making of a Canadian Wilfrid Laurier was born at Saint-Lin, Quebec, on November 20, 1841. His ancestral roots were sunk deep in Canadian soil. For six generations Quebec had been the home of Laurier after Laurier. His kinsmen traced their origin to Anjou, a province that had ever bred shrewd and thrifty men. The family name was originally Cotonou. In a marriage covenant entered into at Montreal in 1666, the first representative of the family in Canada is styled François Cotonneau de Champlaurier. Evidently some ancestral field or garden of Lauriers or Oleanders gave the descriptive title which in time, as was common, became the sole family name. Lauriers came to Canada shortly after Louis XIV took the colony under his royal wing in 1663 in the first era of real settlement and hewed out homes for themselves in the forest, first on the island of Jésus, at the mouth of the Ottawa, and later in the parish of Lachenay, on the north bank of the same river, where they grew in numbers, until Lauriers with Rochons and Matthews made up nearly all the parish. Charles Laurier, grandfather of Wilfrid Laurier, was a man of strong character and marked ability. In face of many difficulties he mastered mathematics, and became a self-taught land surveyor so that he was able to make the surveys of the great Pangman seigneury at Lachenay. Early in the nineteenth century he settled his son Carolus on a farm just hewn out of the forest near the little village of St. Lynn, a frontier settlement nestling at the foot of the Laurentian hills north of Montreal. He himself continued to reside at Lachenay until far on in years when he went to live with his son at St. Lynn. Carolus Laurier followed in his father's footsteps, surveying and farming by turns as opportunity offered. He had not his father's rugged individuality, but his handsome figure, his alert wit, and his amiable and generous nature made him a welcome guest through all the French and Scottish settlements in the North Country. That he had something of his father's progressiveness is shown by the fact that he was the first farmer in the neighborhood to set up a threshing machine in his barn to take the place of the old-time flail. It was his liberal views that gave the first bent to his son's sympathies, and he was, as we shall see, progressive enough to give the brilliant lad the education needed for professional success, and far-seeing and broad-minded enough to realize how great an asset a thorough knowledge of English speech and English ways would be. Yet it was rather to his mother that Wilfrid Laurier, like so many other notable men, owed his abilities and his temperament. Marcel Martineau, kin to the mother of the poet Fréchette, was a woman of much strength of character, of fine mind and artistic talents. She lived only five years after her son was born, but in those few years she had so knit herself into his being that the warm and tender memory of her never faded from his impressionable mind. The only other child of this marriage, a daughter, Malvina, died in infancy. 
Carolus Laurier married again, his second wife being Adeline Ethier. She was much attached to his children, and they to her. Of this second marriage three sons were born. Ubald, who became a physician and died at Arthabasca in 1898, Charlemagne, a merchant in St. Lynn, and later member for the county at Ottawa, who lived until 1907, and Henri, the prothonotary at Arthabasca, who passed away in 1906. Carolus Laurier himself lived on in his little village home forty years after the birth of his eldest son, and his wife lived nearly twenty years longer. It was a quiet, strength-shaping country home in which the future statesman's boyhood was cast. The little village was off the beaten track of travel. Not yet had the railway joined it to the river front. There were few distractions to excite or dissipate youthful energies. Roaming amid the brooding silence of the hills, fishing for trout, hunting partridges and rabbits, and joining the simple village games, the boy took his boyish pleasures and built for his manhood's calm and power. His home had an intellectual atmosphere quite out of the ordinary, and it enjoyed a full measure of that grace or native courtesy which is not least among Quebec's contributions to the common Canadian stock. He had his first schooling in the elementary parish school of St. Lynn, where the boys learned their ABC, their two times two, and their catechism. Then his father determined to give him a broader outlook by enabling him to see something of the way of life and to learn the tongue of his English-speaking compatriots. Some eight miles west of St. Lynn on the Ashigan River lay the village of New Glasgow. It had been settled about 1820 by Scottish Protestants belonging to various British regiments. Carolus Laurier had carried on surveys there, knew the people well, and was thoroughly at home with them. The affinity so often noted between Scottish and French has doubtless more than a mere historical basis. At any rate, son, like father, soon found a place in the intimate life of the Murrays, the Guthries, the Macleans, the Bennets, and other families of the settlement. His experience was further varied by boarding for a time in the home of an Irish Catholic family named Kirk. Later he lived with the Murrays, and often helped behind the counter in John Murray's general store. The school which he attended for two years, 1852 and 53, and 1853 and 54, was a mixed school for both boys and girls taught by a rapidly shifting succession of schoolmasters, often of very unconventional training. In the first session, the school came to an abrupt close in April, owing to the sudden departure of Thompson, the teacher in charge. A man of much greater ability, Sandy McLean, took his place the following term. He had read widely, and was almost as fond of poetry as of his glass. His young French pupil, who was picking up English in the playground and in the home as well as in the school, long cherished the memory of the man who first opened to him a vista of the great treasures of English letters. The experience, though brief, had a lasting effect. Perhaps the English speech had become rusty in the years of college life that followed at L'Assomption, but the understanding and the tolerance and good will which understanding brings were destined to abide for life. It was not without reason that the ruling motive of the young schoolboy's future career was to be the awakening of sympathy and harmony between the two races. It would be fortunate for Canada if more experiments like that which Carolus Laurier tried were even today to be attempted, not only by French, but by English families. In September 1854, when well on in his thirteenth year, Wilfrid Laurier returned to the normal path prescribed for the keener boys of the province. He entered the college or secondary school of L'Assomption, maintained by secular priests, and the chief seat of education in the country north of Montreal. The course was a thorough one, extending through seven closely filled years. 
It followed the customary classical lines, laying chief stress on Latin, and next on French literature. Greek was taught less thoroughly. A still briefer study of English, mathematics, scholastic philosophy, history, and geography completed the course. Judged by its fruits, it was a training admirably adapted, in the hands of good teachers such as the fathers at L'Assomption were, to give men destined for the learned professions a good grounding, to impart to them a glimpse of culture, a sympathy with the world beyond, a bent to eloquence and literary style. It was perhaps not so well adapted to train men for success in business. Perhaps this literary and classical training is largely responsible for the fact that, until of late, the French-speaking youth of Quebec have not taken the place in commercial and industrial life that their numbers and ability warrant. The life at L'Assomption was one of strict discipline. The boys rose at 5.30, and every hour until evening had its task, or was assigned for mealtime or playtime. Once a week, on Wednesday afternoon, came a glorious half-day excursion to the country. There was ample provision for play. But the young student from St. Lynn was little able to take part in rough-and-ready sports. His health was extremely delicate, and violent exertion was forbidden. His recreations took other forms. The work of the course of study itself appealed to him, particularly the glories of the literatures of Rome and France and England. While somewhat reserved and retiring, he took delight in vying with his companions in debate, and in forming a circle of chosen spirits to discuss, with all the courage and fervor of youth, the questions of their little world, or the echoes that reached them of the political tempests without. Occasionally the outer world came to the little village. Assize courts were held twice a year, and more rarely assemblées contradictoires were held in which fiery politicians roundly denounced each other. The appeal was strong to the boys of keener mind and political yearnings, and well-disciplined as he usually was, young Laurier more than once broke bounds to hear the eloquence of advocate or candidate, well content to bear the punishment that followed. Though reserved, he was not in the least afraid to express strong convictions and to defend them when challenged. He entered L'Assomption with the bias towards liberalism which his father's inclinations and his own training and reading had developed. A youth of less sturdy temper would, however, soon have lost this bias. The atmosphere of L'Assomption was intensely conservative, and both priests and fellow pupils were inclined to give short shrift to the dangerous radicalism of the brilliant young student from St. Lynn. A debating society had been formed, largely at his insistence. One of the subjects debated was the audacious theme, resolved, that in the interests of Canada the French kings should have permitted Huguenots to settle here. Wilfrid Laurier took the affirmative and urged his point strongly, but the scandalized préfet d'étude intervened, and there was no more debating at L'Assomption. The boy stuck to his liberal guns and soon triumphed over prejudices, becoming easily the most popular as he was the most distinguished student of his day, and the recognized orator and writer of addresses for state occasions. Of the twenty-six students who entered L'Assomption in his year, only nine graduated. Of these, five entered the priesthood, Sympathetic as Wilfrid Laurier was in many ways with the church of his fathers, he did not feel called to its professional service. He had long since made up his mind as to his future career, and in 1861, when scarcely twenty, he went to Montreal to study law. By this time the paternal purse was lean, for the demands of a growing family and his own generous disposition helped to reduce the surveyor's means, which never had been too abundant. The young student, thrown on his own resources, secured a post in the law office of La Flamme and La Flamme, which enabled him to undertake the law course in McGill University. Rodolphe La Flamme, the head of the firm, was one of the leaders of the bar in Montreal, was active in the interests of the radical wing of the Liberal Party, known as the Rouge. 
The lectures in McGill were given in English. Thanks to his experience at New Glasgow and his later reading, the young student found little difficulty in following them. Harder to understand at first were the Latin phrases in Mr., afterwards Judge, Torrance's lectures on Roman law, for at that time the absurd English pronunciation of Latin was the universal rule among English-speaking scholars. Most helpful were the lectures of Carter in criminal law, admirably prepared and well delivered, J. J. C. Abbott, a sound and eminent practitioner, and future Prime Minister of Canada, taught commercial law. Laflamme had charge of civil law. Young Laurier made the most of the opportunities offered. While carrying on the routine work of the office, joining in the political and social activities of his circle, and reading widely in both French and English, he succeeded admirably in his law studies. H. L. de Saulnier, a brilliant student whose career came to an untimely close, and H. Welsh shared with him the honors of the class. In other classes at the same time were Melbourne Tate, C. P. Davidson, and J. J. Curran, all destined to high judicial rank. The young student's success was crowned by his being chosen to give the valedictory. His address, while having somewhat of the flowery rhetoric of youth, was a remarkably broad and sane statement of policy. The need of racial harmony, the true meaning of liberty, the call for straightforward justice, and the lawyer's part in all these objects were discussed with prophetic eloquence. But even the most eloquent of valedictories is not a very marketable commodity. It was necessary to get rapidly to work to earn a living. Full of high hopes, he joined with two of his classmates in October 1864 to organize the firm of Laurier, Archambault, and de Saulnier. The partners hung out their shingle in Montreal, but clients were slow in coming, for the city was honeycombed with established offices. The young partners found difficulty in tiding over the waiting time, and so in the following April the firm was dissolved, and Wilfrid Laurier became a partner of Médéric Lancto one of the most brilliant and impetuous writers and speakers of a time when brilliancy and passion seemed to have been scattered with lavish hand a man of amazing energy and resource but fated by his unbalanced judgment utterly to wreck his own career langteau was too busy at this time with the political campaign he was carrying on in the press and on the platform against cartier's confederation policy to look after his clients and the office work fell mainly to his junior partner it was a curiously assorted partnership Lankto with his headlong and reckless passion, Laurier with his cool discriminating moderation, but it lasted a year. During this time Mr. Laurier was in but not of the group of eager spirits who made Lankto's office their headquarters. His moderate temperament and his ill health kept him from joining in the revels of some and the political dissipations of others. I seemed to see Laurier as he was at that time, wrote his close friend L. O. David. Ill, sad, his air grave, indifferent to all the turmoil raised around him. He passed through the midst of it like a shadow, and seemed to say to us, Brother, we all must die. In fact, Mr. Laurier's health was the source of very serious concern. Lung trouble had developed with violent hemorrhages, threatening a speedy end to his career, unless a change came. Just at this time, the chief of his party and his most respected friend, Antoine Dorian, suggested that he should go to the new settlement of Arthabaskaville in the eastern townships to practice law and to edit Le Défricheur, hitherto published at L'Avenir, and controlled by Dorian's younger brother Eric, who had recently died. Largely in the hope that the country life would restore his health, he agreed, and late in 1866 left Montreal for the backwoods village. The founder of Le Défricheur, Eric Dorian, nicknamed L'Enfant Terrible, for his energy and fearlessness, was not the least able or least attractive member of a remarkable family. 
He had been one of the original members of the Rouge Party, and, as editor of L'Avenir, a vehement exponent of the principles of that party, but had later sobered down, determined to devote himself to constructive work. He had taken an active part in a colonization campaign, and had both preached and practiced improved farming methods. He had founded the village of L'Avenir in Durham Township, and built a church for the settlers there to show that his quarrel was with ecclesiastical pretensions, not with religion, and for a dozen years had proved a sound and stimulating influence in the growing settlement. When Mr. Laurier decided to open his law office in Arthabaskaville, the seat of the newly formed judicial district of Arthabaska, he moved Le Défrichure to the same village. Lack of capital and poor health hampered his newspaper activities, and, as will be seen later, the journal incurred the displeasure of the religious authorities of the district. Its light lasted barely six months, and then flickered out. This left the young lawyer free to devote himself to his practice, which grew rapidly from the beginning, for the district was fast filling up with settlers. The court went on circuit to Danville and Drummondville and Inverness, and soon, both at home and in these neighboring towns, no lawyer was more popular or more successful. The neighboring counties contained many Scottish, Irish, and English settlers, who were soon enrolled in the ranks of the young advocate's staunch supporters. The tilting in the court, the preparation of briefs, the endeavor to straighten out tangles in the affairs of helpless clients, all the interests of a lawyer deeply absorbed in his profession, made these early years among the happiest of his career. Arthabasco was, even then, no mean center of intellectual and artistic life, and a close and congenial circle of friends more than made up for the lost attractions of the metropolis. But neither work nor social intercourse filled all the young lawyer's nights and days. It was in this period that he laid the foundation of his wide knowledge of the history and the literature of Canada, and of the two countries from which Canada has sprung, Bossuet and Moliere, Hugo and Racine, Burke and Sheridan, Macaulay and Bright, Shakespeare and Burns, all were equally devoured perhaps because of his grandfather's association with the Pangman Seigneury, the property of the fur trader Peter Pangman, his interest was early turned to the great fur trade of Canada, and he delved deep into its records. The life and words of Lincoln provided another study of perpetual interest. Though Montreal was intensely southern in sympathy during the Civil War, Mr. Laurier, from his days as a student, had been strongly attracted by the rugged personality of the Union leader and had pierced below caricature and calumny to the tender strength, the magnanimous patience, of the man. A large niche in his growing library was therefore devoted to memoirs of Lincoln and his period. Congenial work, loyal friends, the company of the great spirits of the past, these were much, but not all. The crowning happiness came with his marriage, May 13, 1868, to Miss Zoe Lafontaine of Montreal. To both, the marriage brought ideal companionship and fulfillment. To the husband especially it brought a watchfulness that at last conquered the illness that had threatened, a devotion which never flagged, for Lady Laurier is still today much more a Laurierite than is Sir Wilfrid, and a stimulus that never permitted contentment with second best. The years of preparation were nearly over. The call to wider service was soon to come. The new Dominion, and not least Quebec, faced many difficult political problems, Aiding in their solution, the young lawyer in the quiet village of Arthabasca was to find full scope for all the strength of brain and all the poise and balance of temper which the years had brought him. End of The Making of a Canadian